he said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us this morning as your people. You have saved us by your grace and for your glory. To stand with you, and to stand for you on mission here on planet Earth, as it is in heaven. God, we don't know much about fighting war. We need you to teach us. And we need you to start, Lord, with what your word tells us to do, to be still and know that you are God. And that we are not. We're not in control We don't have the power to change our lives. We don't have the power to change other people's lives, but you do, God. You are in control. You are sovereign over all of the earth. And you simply ask us to stand, to be still, to be attentive, and to know that you are God. So, Lord, we pray through your word today that you would help us to better understand what it means to trust you enough to be still, to hear from you. For surely after hearing from you, we will never be the same. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen. 
Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. I'm excited to be with you this morning as we continue in our series on Strongholds. And if you don't have one of these booklets and you'd like one, you can raise your hand. I'm sure the ushers would be more than glad to get you one. Anybody need a booklet? This is our roadmap for the next five weeks now, uh, including this week. We have one up front here, tree, and then a couple over here. I have a cold. Um, I, some, I don't know what it is, since Tuesday, and so if I, I hope my, I hope it doesn't look up here like my bedroom does with a mountain of tissues when we get finished, but you'll have to excuse me. I'm trusting the Lord for strength today, amen? All right, so when I blow my nose, I'm going to try and turn off my microphone to save you that, okay? We're with us last week, you know that we, um, began this series by talking about strongholds, and if you didn't hear that message, you can go online and listen to that message. It's a very important foundational message, and as I've studied the word this week and ongoing prior to this, um, I have to acknowledge to you that my heart is so full that I have so much that I want to share with you, and, and time, time is short. I can't, but you must be digging into God's word on your own. You must be going in the spirit of God to the word of God and spending time with the people of God so that you can experience the fullness of what God longs for you to have. Uh, there's no way that you can get a sufficient meal in 45 minutes on a Sunday morning that's going to last you the rest of the week. You really need to be in God's word. So I, I pray that you will use the booklet outside of this time, however the Lord leads, and that you will go to the scriptures and allow him to guide you, and that you will also get into community so you can be studying God's word with other folks here at Grace. We have things called house churches, and we have men's ministry and women's ministry, and lots of opportunities for you to engage with the people of God and the spirit of God studying the word of God. So, um, just in review, last week we talked from 2 Corinthians 10, and that's kind of in your booklet, but we, we acknowledged that established patterns of thinking that run contrary to God and His truth, that's what a stronghold is. And we acknowledge that everyone has them, and they're not just individual in our lives, but they're also systemic. So, strongholds can take root in a family, in a system, in a workplace, in governments, and we believe now that our government is struggling and wrestling tremendously with strongholds, um, established patterns of thinking that run contrary to God's will and his truth. And if you agree with that, um, you've probably at least picked up the newspaper or looked at the internet. Um, there's a lot of darkness in our culture, and this darkness is a scheme of Satan. Now remember, if you're in Christ, he who lives in you is greater than he who is in the world, amen? But you do have an enemy. And that enemy longs to push you down and oppress you. He, first of all, wants to keep you from buying a farm. Because if he can keep you away from Jesus Christ, he knows he has you for eternity. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've said yes to him, you have been bought back, you have been redeemed, you will no longer belong to the world. And you no longer belong to the evil one, you now belong to God. And your identity is secure in him, and you now have a future with him forever in heaven. And when anyone comes to Christ, the enemy just cringes. He hates when that happens. But all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Amen? But after you've come to Christ, what the enemy wants to do is burden you down so that you are not effective for the glory of God. He wants to push you down. He wants to oppress you so that you are not shining your light as brightly as God would have you do. But he who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. And if we trust him in such a way, he will demolish our strongholds. That's what the scripture says here. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, established patterns of thinking that run contrary to God and his truth. Now, by the way, God is also referred to as a stronghold. And a godly stronghold is when God comes around you with his truth and he builds fortresses around you of truth. And it doesn't allow deception to get in. So if you're walking in godly strongholds in this world, you can sniff things out a little bit. You can smell them out and you can go, that doesn't smell like truth to me. You see, God wants to develop godly strongholds in your life. He wants to be your strongholds because he is the truth. So this is what strongholds are. And last week, we looked at a roadmap for change that we're now adopting for the next five weeks from here on out. It's from Jeremiah 6.16. I strongly encourage you to memorize these verses. Would you please read them with me out loud? 
This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. So God clearly gives us simplicity in our relationship with him. You know, the scripture says God made man simple. Man's complex ways are of his own devising. How many of you ever feel like life gets extremely complicated? Show of hands. Okay. That's our own devising. You see, now I didn't say following God was easy. Oh, just the contrary. It's actually impossible apart from him. And, and it involves pain to follow Jesus. It involves a lot of discipline to follow Jesus. No question about it. But he is the one who works in and through us according to his good purpose to accomplish his will. But it requires that we surrender ourselves to him, which means our flesh is going to scream. When you trust Jesus Christ, when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, your flesh is going to hate it. But God doesn't want to come just play with your flesh. He doesn't want to come tease your flesh. He wants to kill your flesh. That his spirit in you might live to the fullest. So this is not easy, folks. But it is simple. He simply says this. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you, you will find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy and it's light, Jesus said. And so God longs for us to come to him in such a way that yes, we trust him and yes, that kills our flesh, but then we find freedom and peace on the other side of it. He demolishes our stronghold thinking. And so today, we're going to look at this word stand and we're going to look at it primarily in a story found in 1 Kings 19. If you have your booklets, you can open to page... Somebody tell me what page that is. Page 9. Page 9. Now, I want to give you a little setup to this story. This story is about Elijah and Jezebel. How many of you have heard this story before? Okay, so I want to actually give you a little preview. Elijah is a prophet of God. Now, the prophetic voice is alive and well in the world today, and some people are called to speak for God in a different way than other people are. This is the way the prophet was. The prophet in the Old Testament and the prophet in the New Testament is God's voice box. And so Elijah is a prophet of God. And he is among many other prophets of God. And he is hated by King Ahab. Ahab is an evil king. He has a distinction of doing more evil than any king before him. And he's married to this witchy woman named Jezebel. We'll get to that in a second. She's queen, he's king. Now, Jezebel wants to kill the prophetic voice. Stop. There is a spirit of Jezebel in the world today. And the spirit of Jezebel wants to squelch the prophetic voice of God. You must understand this. Now, the scripture in Revelation talks about tolerating the spirit of Jezebel. Last week I talked about church discipline here. And in a week, couple weeks time, Ben, I don't know how many, how many weeks, two, three, we're signing the Peacemaker's Pledge? Did we say? About two or three weeks. Okay, you don't know either. Okay, none of us know. Nobody really knows. But, but um, in that Peacemaker's Pledge, we're coming before God as a body and proclaiming we will not tolerate divisiveness in the body of Christ. Do you know why the church of Jesus Christ is not in, um, in this region re in renewal right now and revival and rising up? Do you know the number one reason? Because we are divided. Do you understand? We divide over things that we shouldn't be dividing over. And God calls us to be unified, and the Jezebel spirit often seeks to divide. And by the way, the Jezebel spirit is not just associated with a woman. Men can have the Jezebel spirit. It's just... It functions a little bit differently than in each. You know, sometimes in the Jezebel spirit, a woman will seek to undermine, in a man it will seek to overtake. But the objective is control. Control and manipulation. And I gotta tell you, this spirit is absolutely demonic. So Jezebel, she's consumed with Satan, and she's trying to kill the prophetic voice of God. She's shacked up with this demonic horde of Baal worshipers. 
And the scripture says that they all eat at her table. We'll talk about that a little bit, but I won't get in depth in what that means. But it means that all, all of the desires of the flesh are fulfilled at Jezebel's table. Once Obadiah, this guy Obadiah, helps Elijah and Ahab make the connection. See, he, Obadiah um, was used by God to actually save 100 prophets, 50 into one of each caves. And Obadiah is called by Elijah when they meet to arrange a meeting between the evil king Ahab and Elijah. And so Obadiah is pretty scared at the thought of doing this because he's like, dude, if you're not here when I come back, like Ahab's going to like kill me. But Obadiah is a man of God, and he trusts God in Elijah, and he says, okay, I'll, I'll set up the meeting. And so the minute that Ahab sees Elijah, he goes, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, remember, this is the way that the prophetic voice is perceived by those who do not know God. Think about it. We spoke a little bit about abortion last week. It's not very popular to go out in our culture and speak out against the murder of children in the womb. Now, as I've said before, if you're here today and you've had an abortion, you are covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. And we stand ground level with you at the foot of the cross. You are forgiven in Jesus Christ just as we are forgiven. Your sin is no greater than ours. But you know, when you go out in the world and you start saying things like, abortion is murder. You know what the spirit of Jezebel tries to do? Is hammer that voice down. And so, you see, you're a troubler. You're making trouble for other people. And this is what Ahab says of Elijah. He says, is, that, is you, Elijah, are you there, the troubler of Israel? And Eli shoots back in top form. He says, I'm not the troubler. You are. And Ahab says, no, I'm not. You are. No, I'm, not, I'm just joking. But, you know, it's like this titter-tat. And Eli says, no, no, no. You've led the people away from God. And they're worshiping Baal. At that time, it's like saying they're worshiping Satan. They were, because Baal is a demonic god. He's a demonic deity. So Elijah sets up a showdown between the one true God and Baal, and 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. All of these prophets were in service to Jezebel. Think about that. This is a demonic horde of 850 prophets who are evil and who are practicing evil. And then Eli, our boy, he's representing the one true God. He says, hey, let's set up a showdown. Me, my God, against them, 850, and their puny little God. Now, he's got all this confidence, and he calls the people together, and he challenges the prophets of Baal to show their God's power by setting up an altar and he prepares a sacrifice, and they prepare a sacrifice. And he says, now look, you call down your God and ask him to show himself that he might consume this offering with fire. So the prophets of Baal, they shout, they dance, they scream. And guess what? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And Eli, you know, our boy's just sitting off to the side going, ha, he's just laughing. And then, and then they get frenzied, and they start cutting themselves with knives, as was their tradition, and they're bleeding while they're screaming and wailing and dancing and moaning, and nothing happens. And Eli, he's so filled with faith in his God that he starts to mock these other prophets. 850 to 1. He goes, hey, shout louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's gone on vacation. I'm sure he's traveling. He'll come soon. He is so filled with confidence in God that he mocks Satan to his face. Can I tell you something the scripture says? Satan hates to be mocked. When you know who you are and whose you are, you are free to mock the evil one. And so Eli, he's so confident, man. He's just up there, he's like, hey, you keep yelling. I'm sure he's going to awaken soon. And this whole tongue-in-cheek thing, and still nothing happens. So Eli calls all the people together to watch and he has them pour four jugs of water on the, on the offering. And so this whole drama builds up. Three times he has them do this with the jugs of water. And he digs a trench and the water fills the trench around the altar so that it's totally soaked. You ever try and burn wet wood? Is that successful or not? No, no it's not. You cannot burn wet wood. And he steps forward and he calls on the one true God in prayer. 
and fire from the Lord falls down from heaven and the entire offering is burned up and even the water in the trench is licked up for the glory of God. And all the people fall down on their faces and they worship God. And Eli commands that all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah are executed and they are killed right there. Then after that, he goes up to Mount Carmel and he prays for rain. And after quite a bit of persistence, rain comes. There's been a huge drought. This dude is a rock star for God. You know what I'm saying? He is rocking it out for God. And he's, he's being used as a prophet against insurmountable odds. But there's something inside of our boy Eli. It's called a stronghold. And I'm sure of it. How do I know? Let's pick up on the rest of the story. I'm going to start to read in chapter 19. Verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel, now listen, she's the witchy woman that was shacking up all the demonic horde there, uh, that Eli had done all these things. So Ahab, the king, runs back to his witchy woman wife. They're both practicing evil, worshiping Baal. And he goes, hey, Elijah did all this. He like killed all your prophets. He like did this thing with the altar. It was amazing. And she, in her heart, hates him. And how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. They were all dead. And then Jezebel, underline this, highlight this, sent a messenger to Elijah. Saying, so let the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now listen. This is a messenger of fear. And Satan through his demonic horde is sending messengers of fear to you every day. He wants to sow seeds of fear in your life because fear, effectively used by Satan, will undermine your faith. So listen to verse 3. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah, this dude who's rocking it out for God and wiping out all these prophets and seeing all these incredible things happen. And she says, I'm going to kill you, dude. And you know what he does? Then he arose from there and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Now, listen, I want you to understand something here. After all these victories that are clearly demonstrated by the power of God through Elijah, triumphing over hundreds of prophets and against insurmountable odds, there is something in Elijah, his unrenewed mind and his unhealed emotions that caused him to fall apart before Jezebel. This dude has a great God. This is one witchy woman. By the way, she's a powerful witchy woman. But when he hears from her that she's going to kill him, he falls apart, climbs under a broom tree and says, God, kill me. I just want to die. Elijah had an old mindset that defeated him when the right circumstances presented themselves. I want to say that again. Elijah had an unrenewed mind and a stronghold that sought to defeat him when the right circumstances presented themselves. You have to understand this because the enemy knows this about you. You and I have stronghold thinking that can be triggered under the right circumstances. You know when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in a desert? You know when he got finished tempting him? You know what it said? He withdrew until an opportune time. The enemy has your M.O., he knows what's been sown in your heart and mind. Now, he can't read your thoughts. Only God can do that. He, he's not all-powerful. We're not going to give him all that powerful. But he, what he knows is he knows how you've been formed. And he knows what lies you believe. And so he can just withdraw to an opportune time. And then he'll present in a circumstance, and boom, you are leveled. You are doobie, do, down, down. And that's what happened to this dude. Because look what God did through him. His faith was like on a mountaintop. And now he's in the gutter. This is a stronghold. So how did Elijah overcome his mindset? How did he go from a place of fear and hiding and despair and depression on to trust God? Let's read on. 
We'll pick it up in verse 5. And as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down. And then the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Stop. First of all, if you are in Christ Jesus, do you know that you have angels around you? These are heavenly warriors that are engaged in the battle for you. Now, I've, I've had personal encounters with angels. I really believe that. I'm not saying that I saw manifestations of evils, although I of angels, but I have seen, by the way, manifestations of demonic forces. And some of you go, you, you, you're losing your mind, Jeff. No, I lost my mind a long time ago. I gave it to Jesus. See, some of this stuff sounds outlandish to the world. The scripture says it's foolishness to those who don't believe. But if you do believe, you know you are in a spiritual battle and God attends to you with angelic forces. He loves you so much. And his angels are such mighty warriors for the kingdom of God. Now, we're not to worship angels. We're to worship the one who sent them, the one and only true God. But you need to know that you have angelic forces assigned to you and around you who are working on behalf of the one who loves you. And they long to peer into the things of God in you. So God meets Elijah's physical needs for rest and for nutrition. Let's just stop there for a second. Can I tell you something? There are strongholds that keep you from taking care of your body. There are strongholds that we have in our lives that keep you from taking the time that you need to get the rest that you need. Folks, I know this personally in my life. I lived this way for a long time. I always thought that sleep was a complete waste of time. Anybody with me? There's too much to do. I'm going to miss something. And so I just, you know, stay up, stay up, stay up, stay up in college. I was up till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and get up at 6 o'clock again. That's just completely ridiculous. Anybody say amen to that? But you know what? Many of us have done stuff like that. And then we don't eat, and we don't take care of our bodies, and then we wonder, oh, why am I feeling this way? Well, for crying out loud, you're not taking care of the temple. And your spirit, you are a spiritual being housed in a physical body. And it's really important that we honor God with our bodies. So the first thing God does through this angel is he provides food, and he allows a place for Elijah to sleep. Can I tell you something? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Anybody say amen to that? You know, you're chewing out people around you and you're just a mess and you're making a mess everywhere you go and all this kind of stuff. And God is saying, go lay down. You are a bear right now. I mean, you stop there and go home. Does everybody go home and sleep the rest of the afternoon? Skip the Super Bowl. Is that on today even? I don't care. Who's playing anyway? Not the Eagles, not the Ravens. Oh, well, whatever. So look. He ate and he drank. And, and, and the scripture says here, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Your journey is too great for you. You need God and you need to listen to him for you to take care of your physical needs. It says, He arose and he ate and he drank. So he was obedient. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, by the way, if you were Israelite at this time and you heard Horeb, your heart would fill with awe. This is the mountain of God. This is about 200 miles from where Eli was at this time. I call him Eli. He's just my buddy. He's like, you know, shortening it a little bit. Not to be confused with the other Eli. His name's Elijah. But he traveled 200 miles to go to the mountain of God. It was a sacred place. This is the same place that Moses talked to God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, listen, underline, highlight, circle. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, can I help you understand something? When God asks us a question, okay, when God ever asks a question, it's not for God's benefit. It's for ours. He knows everything. So he knew what Elijah was doing there, but he was trying to ask Elijah the question for Elijah's benefit. What 
are you doing here, Elijah? It's a significant question for Elijah. And it has tremendous significance for us today. Listen to Eli's response. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He says this with dramatic tones. Let me ask you a question. Is what Elijah is saying here true? It's not. First of all, he said, I am alone, I'm left. We need a hundred prophets. Been saved in caves already by Obadiah. But he said also this, your children, they've all forsaken your covenant. This is black and white thinking. It's all or nothing. It's like, I'm the only one left. I'm all alone, God. I'm all alone. Now, can I ask you something? If you have Jesus Christ in your life, are you ever alone? You're never alone. So we're going to see here in a few minutes when God addresses Elijah's stronghold thinking that, that he's got a stronghold. But he's saying, look, I'm so zealous for you. I've done all this stuff, and now I'm on the run here, and all your kids have turned their back on you, and all I'm alone, and now they're going to kill me, God. They're going to kill me. This is Elijah's stronghold mantra. You know what a mantra is? Something you repeat over and over and over and over again. You can have a godly mantra. The Lord is my strength, my stronghold, my deliverer. That can be your mantra. Or you can have a mantra like, I need to run. I need to hide. I need to fight. I need to do something to protect myself. And that's what the heart of Elijah's mantra is. I have to protect myself. God says, no, no, no. I am your protector. See, it began with a wound. I'm sure it wasn't easy for Jezebel to hear about the killing of all his bodies. When Jezebel took off and started killing all these prophets, Elijah, I'm sure, was deeply grieved at that. And he believes he's all alone and that his role is all alone and that his love for God is all alone and that he's fearful and potentially prideful. When you say, I'm the only one who loves God, can I tell you something? You've got a pride problem. If you say, I go to the only church that loves God, can I tell you something? You have a pride problem. Because God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's tune back in. Verse 11, then he said, go out and stand. There's our word. On the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now look, if God asks you a question, it's not for his benefit. If he asks it a second time, you can safely assume that you did not get it the first time. You did not get his point the first time. He's patient and he's kind and he'd be asking you questions time and time and time again because he doesn't tire of you. He loves you. He'll just keep saying, what are you doing here? You know how I've been applying this to my life recently? So when I crawl in a hole somewhere and I do something that like maybe I'm doing too long, like watching TV. Anybody know that TV is a complete wasteland? Anybody say amen to that? So what I'll be doing is I'll, I'll turn on a show, and then all of a sudden I'll start to binge watch. Anybody binge watch? Get honest. You binge watch? Yeah. And I'm, I'm into like the third episode of something, you know, and maybe it's not super bad for me, but it's not like edifying. And God says, Jeff, what are you doing here? Maybe I'm overeating. Maybe I'm in a place of bitterness towards my wife. God says, Jeff, what are you doing here? This is not fitting for you. You are my son, the son of the Most High God, adopted by me and bought at a price. This is not the place for you. See, Elijah cried under a broom tree. He said, God, kill me. It's said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Do you know who I am? 
Do you remember what I did? Do you know what I can do? Elijah, what are you doing here? And God calls for each one of us to listen to God ask us that question each and every day of our lives. What are you doing here? Well, he says again, he drums up the same old mantra when verse 14 And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Like he just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. You would think that God asked the question the first time. He answered him. He asked it a second question. You think he'd change his pattern of thinking. But can I tell you something? Strongholds are deeply ingrained. God... He doesn't really ever directly like respond. He kind of ignores Elijah's kind of response. And here at 15, he says, Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. And also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nishmi, as king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Zaphat, or Abel, whatever that is, you shall anoint as your prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill him. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill him. So Elijah is going to instill Elisha as prophet after him. Listen, verse 18. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He says, Elijah, what kind of crap are you believing? You're alone? No, I have a plan for you, first of all. You're not done. I'm not done with you. And second of all, I've not only saved these 100 prophets, I have 7,000 of my children who I've saved. Now get up and go. Get up and go in my name. Trust me. Have faith in me. In the midst of all your fears, I am the victor. And I will give you the victory. And by the way, you've been buying a pack of lies, son. You were never alone. You have me, and there are others. See, 7,000 who had not bowed down to this puny God named Baal. Trust me, walk with me, know me more, and I will demolish that stronghold thinking of yours. But you must stand. Now look, let's take a look at some of these things. First of all, you need to stand as a habit. When we're talking about standing, we're talking about being still and being attentive. Remember the scripture in Jeremiah 6.16 that says, stand at the crossroads and look. It doesn't say sit down at the crossroads and look. It doesn't say lay in your lazy boy at the crossroads and look. It doesn't say lie down, which would be the posture that most of us would choose, with a very soft pillow and lots of warm blankets, right? Because I like that. There's a time for that, but that's not this time. He says stand. What is that? It means to be still and attentive. Stay awake. You're still, but you're attentive. Your body's still. Yes, you're resting in the Lord, but you're listening, and you're watching, and you're waiting on God. Now look, Elijah walked 200 miles to Horeb to stand quietly before God. And you and I have a hard time going to our prayer closet. There's something really wrong. We have forsaken an understanding of what it means to go to God and be still before him. And God says, no, model your life after my son, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ was fully God, but he was also fully man, which means that he did these things that we need to do. If Jesus did it and he needed to do it, how much more so do we need to do it? Look what it says. Very simple scripture. Read it out loud with me. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Period. That's it. Disciples would get up. They'd be like scratching and getting breakfast ready. Hey, where's Jesus? Off again. What do you mean off again? He's, He's off again. He's praying over there. Quiet place by himself with him and his father. Standing with God being attentive to what God is saying. Jesus said things like this, I only do what I see the Father doing. I I listen to the Father and then I obey the Father. What he's saying is I'm standing, I'm being attentive before God and I'm listening to God. The scripture says in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, how many of you would ever say that you are God? All right, you stand back because the lightning will strike if you raise your hand. How many of you act like you're God? Raise your hands. Raise your hand. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I know you. Why? Because I know me. You have a habit of acting like you're God, like you're in control. How many of you think you know what's right? Case in point, every married person is throwing the elbow right now. And in doing so, you should be raising your own hand. You see, what happens is we fall into this posture of thinking that somehow we're going to actually fix our own lives. We have to have it together. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says we are broken and we desperately need God. And when we submit ourselves to him, we're trusting him in such a way that we say, no, you're God, I'm not. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, him, and he will make straight your paths. See, standing is a place where we are attentive and still before God and we acknowledge that he is God and that we are not. And this needs to be habitual. You need to practice this, and I would recommend this, morning and night. You go to your prayer closet first thing in the morning. Most people are like, I am not a morning person. I understand that. And maybe initially in your devotion time, it's better for you in the evening. But it's very important when you start your day that before you even let your feet hit the floor, you say, God, it's going to be your way today, not mine. And you climb into your closet. You stand with God. You're attentive. So get a little coffee if you need it. But you're attentive, but you're still. You hold your hands open. You say, toda, which means thank you, God, for things that have yet to come. And you open his word, and you pray, and you allow him to speak to you. He loves you so much. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you the things that he says are not going to hurt. Some of them are, but they hurt because he loves you. They hurt because he wants to set you free from yourself. And so we need to stand as habit. Two, we need to stand when facing a decision. Now, look, um, the average person makes 35,000 decisions per day. Um, The scripture says, stand at the crossroads and look. The crossroads means that there are two places at least that you can go. And you're supposed to be still there, listening to God, so that you can receive his guidance as to which way to go and which way to not go. Now, many of us have never stood at the crossroads in certain areas of our lives, like finances, like other places, and we get way down this road, and then we cry out, God, how did I get here? He says, you never stood at the crossroads. You never stopped to be still. You acted like you were God, and you just decided to go this way, and now we need to walk back together to the crossroads. How many of you know it's much easier to get in debt than get out of debt? How many of you know it's much easier to gain weight than to lose it? We didn't stand at the crossroads. God says, okay, got to trudge the road of happy destiny back back to the crossroads, and then my way, my way. But God, can't we just like do a shortcut? Um, No. But I'm with you. I love you. And we can walk back. And by the way, when you walk with me, your burden is easy. It's lighter my way. I'll make all things new for you. I will. I'll restore you. But I want you to learn to stand when you're making a decision with me so you can be still and attentive And look, I guarantee this, if you do not hear from God, wait. Don't make the decision. Now, will you tick off some people? Absolutely. Can I tell you as elders here, sometimes we frustrate people. You know why? Because we're supposed to be humble men who hear God together. We're supposed to stand at the crossroads and listen to God. And you know what? Sometimes he doesn't speak right away. And he says, wait. That's what he says, wait. And we went back to people that wanted an answer, and we go, he said, wait. And they go, we don't want to wait. We go, sorry, that's what he said. Be patient with us. Be patient with him. But how many of you love to be patient and wait? But God says, I want you to slow down. I want you to know that I love you. 
And I want you to stand with me at the crossroads. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that Jesus is so concerned about what tie you pick out in the morning for work. Some people are like, no, no, he wants the power one. <laughs> He's concerned about the, the intimate decisions that you make every day, the ones that you make most of all that have to do with how you relate to other people because God is all about relationships. So the decisions that are important to him are how you um, relate to your spouse at the breakfast table, how you love on your kids, how you speak to your parents, how you treat your boss, how you treat your employees, what, what you do with his money. These are the decisions that are important to him. And I wonder sometimes if we're not standing with him because we just think we have it right. I know, dude, I, I do at times, and I know God has a thousand ways to humble me, and I know he has a thousand ways to humble you, and I can tell you this, it's all love. It's all love. So we're to stand when we're making a decision. We're also to stand when our emotions run high. Emotions are a gift from God. God is an emotional being. And so, you know, Elijah here, he was doobie-doo down-down. He, he felt great fear, and then out of that fear came this great sense of discouragement. And discouragement, by the way, is when the enemy is taking courage away from you. To encourage someone means to infuse them with courage. So when you speak words of courage to someone and you say, I see Jesus Christ in you, and he is mighty to save, and he is longing to work in and through you in such a beautiful way to touch others. You see, you're infusing people with courage. The enemy wants to steal your courage. God wants to give you courage in him. And so discouragement leads to despair. And despair is a sense of hopelessness. And when you get in despair, you are far from God. Because there is always hope with God. Always hope with God. Now look, all of us fall into despair. But God wants to pick you up out of that slimy pit, out of the muck and mire, and set your feet on a rock, which is him. Emotions are great slaves, but they are lousy masters. And a lot of us just fly by feel. We go around and say, I feel this way, it must be true. No, that's not right at all. Your feelings do not dictate what is true. The word of God dictates what is true. And a lot of times your feelings come out of what you're telling yourself, and what you're telling yourself is not true. So Elijah's got this mantra going, oh, I've been so zealous for you, God. I've been so passionate for you, but dude, I'm the only one left. Everybody else has run away from you. I'm the only one who's actually doing your will. And by the way, I'm all alone. They killed every other prophet. And God's saying, that is such stinking thinking. Elijah, you're my son. I, I have a plan for your future. And by the way, I've saved 7,000, dude. Like, come on. Get off your pity pot. So many of us, we allow despair and depression to drive us to a place of self-pity. And we wallow in that like we need it to survive. Married people, I need to talk to you here. We allow despair to creep into our marriages and we say, this is hopeless. I will never, this will never change. Then we wall off, we get isolated, we ice our hearts and our love grows cold and we turn our backs on each other and we decide to live this existence of stable misery. And can I tell you something that does not bring pleasure to God? Can I tell you why I know it intimately? It's because I've chosen it at times. Tracy and I talk openly about this, but we've chosen this in our marriage. Can I tell you something? Our marriage is in revival right now by the grace of God. I love that woman more than I've ever loved her in my entire life, and I've been married to her 26 years, going on 27. I got it right, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's my best friend other than Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? That takes work. See, the kind of work that takes? Killing the flesh. It takes not listening to my feelings. It takes being willing to stand with God when I am so fuming mad. I said that like a married person, did I not? I am so fuming mad and say, God, what do you want me to see here? She's doing this again. He goes, Jeff, what are you doing here? How did you get to this place? Not by my will, but by yours. Jeff, let's go back to the crossroads. 
stand together and look at what I called you to do. I called you to love her the way that I love you. You didn't sign up for this thing to get everything you wanted. You signed up for this thing to love her. And are you doing that right now, Jeff? What are you doing at this place? You are my son. You're a son of the most high God. I have more for you than this. You are free, Jeff. You are free to love others even when you think they're not loving you. Will you stand with me long enough to hear from me? Because my truth will penetrate your heart and mind in such a way that your emotions will change. So many of us have made a religion out of our emotional lives. And in the culture, it's gotten so clear. I've heard people this week espouse this stuff that emotion is the highest level of truth. So what I feel is true. No matter what anybody else says, it's just, that's the most, so you're, you're wearing that hat or you're carrying that sign. It's making me feel bad. Take it off. Well, what about truth? My feelings are true. Take it off. When we trust God in such a way, can I tell you something? The level to which we get offended goes down. Sure shine that you have strongholds, and by the way, I'm talking about me. I'm recovering from this. A sure sign that you have strongholds is you are easily offended. So this Elijah and Jezebel thing, it's a classic case of fear of man, or woman in this case. Elijah is, by the way, a very powerful woman, and I could go off on a whole thing about masculinity right now, but I'm just going to look at my brothers for a few minutes. I know this is about me. God has called you to love your wives, love the women around you, without question. Scripture is very clear about this. But they are not your God. God longs for you to rise up as men and be men and to not give your power away to anyone. You're called to give your devotion to God. Scripture is very clear. You're going to be divided because you don't want to please your life. The unmarried man wants to please the Lord. That's what Paul says. But as married men, we are to actually look to the Lord and lead our families. To lead our families in the strength of the Lord. And by the way, you are to consult your wife, but this next line is not going to be very popular in this culture. You're supposed to follow Jesus. And I can tell you that's been rough for us at times. It's been hard for us at times because I, I think God's saying this, well, I don't know, I don't know. We got to go. We got to go. We got to trust God. We're going. We're going. You haven't liked that all the time, right? No. Hasn't always worked out right either. I can tell you that. But what I have to tell you this is that I'm supposed to follow Jesus. I'm not supposed to give my power away. And this is a classic case of the fear of man creeping in here to say, my God is so big, but I'm going to run away from this woman. The minute she threatens me, I'm going to run away. Now, this is stronghold thinking. How does stronghold thinking that creep in, how does it actually begin in our lives? Well, look, what happens is that a seed of fear is often planted in our hearts. You need to listen carefully to this. A seed of fear is planted in our hearts that someone we know or a group of people that we're a part of is starting to embrace thinking that is contrary to God and his truth and not wanting to offend, not we want to fit in, fear takes a stronghold in us and then we'll begin to ascribe to that belief system for fear of being rejected. It's a slow creep. Listen to this quote from Joni Erickson Tata and gradually, Though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, and then legal, and then applaudable. See what happens? As we start allowing fear to dictate what we believe, so that we can be accepted. No, fear God. If you fear God, that will take care of every other fear that you have. You must live in reverence to him and run to the word of God and run to the person of God and stand with God. And then you can say to people, um, no, look, I love you, but I completely disagree with you. Why? Well, because the word of God says so. Oh, you hate me. No, I don't. I love you. I just said that I disagree with you. Oh, you must hate me. Listen to this quote from Rick Warren. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first one is if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second one is that to love someone means you need to agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. 
You don't. Look, <laughs> how many people who are married could say that they agree with everything in this? Anybody in the room? I agree 100% with my spouse. Boy, look at the silence. <laughs> how many people would say, I love my spouse? Look, you don't have to agree with everybody to love them. And, and, and this is fear that the enemy is trying to sow in us by saying, you are such a hateful person. Well, you can say whatever you want. I know Jesus, he's filled with love and he lives in me. But here's the truth. I love you, but I don't agree with you. Oh, I just can't believe you're such a hateful person. You see, this is the way the enemy starts to attack us and then it's a slow crawl where we start allowing the world's thinking to replace our godly thinking and then our strongholds are developed and we start walking in deception. Look, we must stand when an idol or temptation presents itself. Elijah stopped worshiping God the minute that he feared Jezebel. I'm going to say that again. Elijah stopped worshiping God the minute that he feared Jezebel and ran for his life. For whoever or whatever rules over you is in fact the Lord of your life. And Elijah was submitting himself to the lordship of Jezebel. So when he goes to God and says, I've been consumed with zeal for you, God's going, um, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, you threw me off the throne. I stay on the throne, but you threw me off the throne in your mind and in your soul. You put Jezebel there. What are you doing here? You ran, dude. You ran. I'm your God. I can protect you. Look, I'm mighty to save. But you're living in fear. And whatever we fear is what we worship. Folks, this is really something you need to stand with God and allow him to examine your life. Well, I fear losing my husband. I fear losing my wife. I think about it all the time. It, it consumes me. You are worshiping them. Stop it. For your own sake and for their sake and for the sake of the community around you, put the Lord in the first place. And last, we're going to stand whenever God prompts us to. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now remember, Horeb was the same mountain that Moses stood on. And Moses saw a burning bush there. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to it, see, Moses, he was walking with his sheep. Dude's just going, thinking, he's doing his thing. And then he looks out of his eye and he sees a burning bush. And he goes over to it. See, when God prompts you, to stand, you got to stand. The truth of the matter is, you probably walk by a hundred burning bushes every day. I'd probably do the same thing. And God is saying, stop. Something beautiful is right before you. This very moment is sacred because I am attending to it. Stand with me and listen to me. So in these verses here, it says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Son or daughter of the Most High God, the place you are standing on right now is holy ground. As you walk from this place today, because your God who loves you attends to you, where you go, you are standing on holy ground. He's asking you to stand with him, to listen to him. And to hear him say, my child, what are you doing here? Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, your loving kindness to us. God, we ask that you would help us to just draw closer to you through your spirit, through your word, and through your people, that you would become a greater stronghold in and around us in such a way that we would have impenetrable truth and that we would be walking, Lord God, as your people, free, loosed, to love you in a way that is unprecedented. Father, we ask you would help us this week just to stand. You know, you keep it simple, God. We're the ones who make it complex. So this week, Lord God, each day of this week, just take, help us to take time, God. Just to be still, to know that you're in control we're not and to listen for your still small voice 
For after hearing from you, surely we will never be the same. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.